Welcome to the Push Dose Medic Podcast, where we focus on core concepts for the beginner paramedic. I'm your host, Jaron Gerald. I think that's the, the big thing that I try to um, tell people, and we can talk about it, is just that, you know, there's a, a myth that capnography is a, a respiratory assessment when when really it's a, it's a perfusion assessment. Welcome back, guys, to the Push Dose Medic Podcast. I want to thank you guys for tuning in this week. This week, uh, we have another guest, a friend and a colleague of mine. His name's John Carrico. He actually does this really good presentation on capnography. And since a lot of you guys are listeners that are not local, I wanted to just bring this onto the podcast. He explains some really good information and some information you may or may not know about capnography. It's a really good tool. It's something that I use on almost all my patients. And we'll get into why it's not just a respiratory tool, but it's a cardiac tool. And it's just a general tool that we can use on a lot of patients to kind of guide our treatment. So I have John on the line. I'll let him introduce himself. Hey, Jared. Uh, thanks so much for uh, having me. It's uh, it's great to be here, and I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to uh, nerd out with you guys a little bit and talk about uh, capnography. It's uh, it's one of the things I'm pretty passionate about, and uh, I think the, the word is spreading, so I'm, I'm happy to be here. Let's start with just a basic overview. I know when I went through school, capnography or entitled CO2, whatever you want to call it, was not really explained too much. And if it was, it was, you know, it's used on our endotracheal tubes to confirm intubation. What are some basis on capnography and what exactly is it? Yeah, so I think that the thing to think about when we're talking about capnography, obviously, we're, you know, the, the process is that we're capturing the exhaled CO2, you know, from the lungs. So it's the, the end of the expiration process that we're we're actually uh, capturing, but it's it's knowing what that information is and how we've gotten there that I think is really important. So if we think about it, when you know when we're breathing in and out, that moving air in and out of our lungs, we have to kind of refer to that as ventilation. And then the next step, obviously, of, of getting air in our lungs is getting that oxygen down into those alveoli where the gas exchange can occur. And you know that's a that's a separate process, and, and usually we think about that in, the, in in measuring that with our pulse oximetry, and that's kind of the beginning of the respiratory process. But then that that oxygen has to get into the bloodstream, and then we have to have a, our cardiovascular system actually intact and working for for that uh, oxygen to be transported all the way down to all those cells in our body for the cells to actually be able to use it to to do their job to go through the Krebs cycle and to to produce ATP and to do their job. And then obviously the byproduct of cells doing their job or one of the chief byproducts is CO2. And that gets dumped back in the bloodstream and, and with adequate perfusion that's carried back to the lungs. And we're obviously exhaling that. And so capnography is that measurement of the, of the um, CO2 that our cells have, have used or have uh, created after they do their job. And and for that all to work, for us to have that capnography working, for us to get those normal readings that we think of, that we have to have ventilation working well, we have to have uh, perfusion working well, and we have to have metabolism working well. So entitled CO2 gives us lots of information, not just you know that our, our ET tube is in the right place, but it gives us a wealth of information. And really, it's driven by the ability for our body to perfuse. Because if we can't get blood to all our cells, then the cells can't one, do their job effectively, and then two, they can't 
off-gas that CO2 and, and for us to get it to our lungs. Yeah, so it uh, sounds like uh, Entitle gives us a plethora of information from you know the oxygen molecule from the time it uh, we breathe it in to the time we breathe it out. I feel like a lot of times we we slap the SpO2 monitor on and we think we as long as it gives us you know 94 and above we we feel good about ourselves. But when we hook up Entitle CO2, we can actually see if that person is maybe on a left shift or a right shift depending on their their disease process. SpO2 sometimes can read high or read low, but given a good end title, we can actually see if they're actually perfusing. Let's see somebody that's in a hypermetabolic demand, that SpO2 might be high, but they could also not be perfusing well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're right. And, and I think SpO2, you know, it certainly has its place. Uh, you know, it, it gives us information in terms of, yeah, how... Um, how our red blood cells are being, you know, um, uh, oxygenated, hopefully. But we also know that the SpO2 has, you know, some, some, some limits. Certainly, I think we've all come across times when SpO2 has uh, been a challenge. We haven't been able to get accurate information that, you know, if we think about one as simple as the nail polish that we may have be up, up against, or as I like to call it, little, little lady hands, where they just have uh, poor perfusion to those fingertips. So we don't get accurate information, but then then we have to really think about our critical patients that we transport, and when we start involving uh, you know medications like pressors like levofed, you know levofed's job is to create squeeze there and to shunt blood you know essentially back to the core to create vasoconstriction to to increase pressure, and when we do that, we take away perfusion to our our extremities, especially notably our fingertips and our toes. So when we start adding pressor therapy to people who are really sick, well, then suddenly we're, we're, we're not getting as accurate uh, pulse oximetries. And so that's where we have to, to rely also on our entitled CO2 to help guide that inf- guide us and to know that it doesn't give us the same information, but it gives us a lot of information that we can, if we, if we know how to use it, we can interpret that and, and help guide our the treatment for our patients. So in conjunction, you we we're using SpO2 to measure our saturation, and if we don't have anything odd like our nail polish and our carbon monoxide, we can pretty much rely on that. And then we're using our end title if we want to sum that up is really just our perfusion status of the patient. So we using those together, it seems like we can get a a good amount of information about what's going on with our patient. Yeah, and I would also add too, you know, perfusion is by far the most important. I think information or data that the end title CO2 gives us. But we also can get some indirect uh, data about um, the patient's um, metabolism. If we think about one of the one of the things, and we can we can get into this certainly later too. But one of the, the things that can change entitled CO two is how how are the cells um, uh, how much energy are those cells uh, using? How much how much are they working? For example, if somebody is febrile, that we know that. When in order to produce a fever in our body, to create that hostile environment in our body, that our cells kind of turn into overdrive to jack up the temperature in our body. And, and so in order to do that, they're going to also jack up the metabolism, increase that metabolism. And then th- thusly, that's going to increase the amount of entitled CO2 that's uh, being produced as well. So it gives us a metabolism thing as well. But certainly if perfusion is the, is the number one be all end all in terms of um, the data that we're getting. Entitle CO2, we'll start talking a little bit about what most people think it's about, and that's uh, respiratory. Um, so, and I know in North Carolina, it's the gold standard. If you don't have a 
and title rating after you innovate, that's a that's a pretty harsh harsh thing, especially um the one story that came about. It was a maybe about ten years ago, I believe. The Do It for Drew campaign, if no one's heard about it, you can look up the more about me on doitfordrew.org. But basically this uh this kid had a skateboard accident. This is back where uh where I used to work down east in a different county, but close to it had a skateboard accident and just needed to be um, had a secondary opinion at a level one trauma center. He was transported there by ground due to uh, not meeting weather minimums for the helicopter. They intubated him once he wasn't sedated enough. So he pulled the tube in route. They intubated him again, but it was an esophageal intubation. Nobody used capnography. They never confirmed the tube with capnography. So he was awake and totally alert with the tube in his mouth they tried to pull it out again and they just administered a paralytic and then wrote it in. So he ended up dying of a hypoxic brain injury due to his, uh, his labs just being all out of whack and having a esophageal intubation. So this totally could have been avoided by using capnography. Is there anything you want to say about that whole situation of how capnography may have would have changed his outcome? Certainly that, 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 uh, you know, while that was, terribly tragic incident that I think, you know, as you said, could have been avoided. I think it also, um, it changed how we approach intubation and especially in the transport world. Um, so not only does it confirm, as you said, but really it, it, you know, it, it helps us in terms of managing our patient, um, when we're, you know, going from point A to point B, um, certainly from uh, my aspect of, you know, one of, one of the jobs I do is I do work as a, a flight paramedic on a helicopter and when we're transporting our, our intubated patients, especially when, when we have on ventilators, which most of them are, you know, we're not, we don't have the ability to listen to lung sounds in flight due, due to the noise of the aircraft. And so having that entitled CO2 and monitoring that in route, it gives me that information that my tube is, is uh, remaining in place throughout that, you know, throughout the different movements of loading patients into aircrafts you know, in, in flight. And then obviously, um, when we're offloading them and, and moving them. And so, uh, it really provides us that, that dedicated information. And then of course, if there's any, you know, potential changes in perfusion status, then it, it'll also give us that information as well in that, in that regards. But certainly the most important thing in terms of, uh, that ET tube that, and, and because it, and how it's become that gold standard is, you know, I believe that the data now is saying that it's greater than 99% accuracy of, uh, provide or giving us uh, good data on it being in the right place. That being the ET tube is in, is in the trachea versus uh, in the esophagus, esophagus or or if it's back in the in the posterior oropharynx. So really, really strong, reliable tool for us to use to make sure that that ET tube is in the right place. And um, with all the movement that we can do with, with our patients from point A to point B, it's it's a it's it's a must have. Your end title is pretty much your lifeline once you have someone intubated. Whether you're ground transport, uh, 911 agency, if you've worked any cardiac arrest, you know from the point getting that body out of the house and into the back of the ambulance, there's a lot of jostling going around. There's four or five people trying to fit through a door. So you definitely want to just monitor that. That is your lifeline once you have that tube in to monitor that waveform capnography and that number to make sure your tube is still in the correct place after all that jostling. And like you said, being on the helicopter, you can't use a stethoscope. That's You pretty much have one just for your pre-flight assessment on the patient. But once you're in flight, you're not going to be able to hear lung sound. So that's definitely uh, a lifeline. 
in the transport world. Yeah, and that and that and that can work the same in terms of you know when you're working on um, on a ground transport too. You know, uh, certainly it can be it can be loud, um, it can be noisy as if you're if you're doing an emergent transport and there's you know the sirens, um, all that stuff. You know, is is uh, noise that can get in the way and, and and cause you to question whether or not you're you are hearing good breath sounds or not. But when you have that entitled CO two in front of you and it's it's showing you a waveform and that waveform has been consistent, you know, from when you transfer the patient and that really is uh, that reliable a lifeline as you said in terms of ensuring that your tube's in the right place so if you print a strip out and you actually look at the top hat there's a few key things you want to note on your slope so just remember it's the exhalation phase so that's what's going to give you your perfect top hat john do you want to explain what each little slope uh, kind of represents yeah it, it's it's um it's not too complicated but it's it's good to understand kind of what you're looking at um, so the first aspect of things is just the baseline. Um, and, and obviously that's hopefully for most patients, um, that's zero. And that is where the flat part, um, of our waveform before it starts to, to, um, break vertical. So that's our baseline. And again, that should be zero. And that represents the end of inspiration in our patients. So the next feature is the upstroke. And that's when the first vertical part of the uh, waveform and that, that upstroke represents the, the dead space in our bronchial tree, the air that didn't make it to the alveoli. It represents that air being getting to um, getting exhaled out. From there, we go into what we refer to as our plateau or alveolar plateau. And that's the long top part of the top hat. And that should be the longest part of the, the waveform. It should be uh, more or less uh, flat, maybe with a, just a gradual rise, but that represents the emptying of the air that was actually in our alveoli that underwent gas exchange. From there, uh, that represents, as we get to that little peak at the end, that is the end of our exhalation, and then thusly when we take our next breath in. And so from there, we have um, what we refer to as our downstroke, our inspiratory downstroke, and obviously that rep- represents us starting to... Uh, inhale. And as we inhale, obviously our, our CO2 is going to dramatically go down and, uh, and then we return to baseline and, and start that process over again. Yeah. Any alteration in that top hat, you'll have some kind of disease, either disease process or abnormal breathing. Sometimes your baseline can elevate and that kind of equals into someone rebreathing. What helped me understand this is actually breathing through the waveforms, if that makes sense. So if, um, if I'm rebreathing, I'll rebreathe with the waveform, and it kind of gives me an idea of what that patient's going through. And let me also just note that in terms of when you are interpreting a waveform, that it's really important that you print that strip out. Um, that just the same with on a cardiac monitor, that if you're if you're attempting to look at the the um, the monitor, especially like a twelve lead, um, you have to remember that that monitor compresses that uh, data a little bit, the actual visual data that we're looking at. And it does the same thing with the uh, entitled CO2 waveform. So getting into uh, thinking about some of the different waveforms, um, as you said, um, obviously there's, there's hypoventilation and that's going to, you know, uh, show up as a, as a slow uh, respiratory rate. So we're, we're going to see just a, a long, long pauses in between the, the different uh, uh, waveforms. And then sometimes that, that uh, corresponds with also uh, increasing entitled CO2 in terms of air treatment. But so we can get into hypoventilation here shortly. There's, there's hyperventilation, which uh, much like tachycardia, that's uh, obviously an increased respiratory rate. 
um, in which we see very short waveform patterns, uh, real compressed because that patient is breathing really fast. So those exhalation periods are really short in between those patients taking breaths. So that's, those are those are some, some of the easy ones. Is um, certainly the one that we think more about is a waveform that shows us a bronchoconstriction. And so if you think about it, as as Jaren said, the the top hat picture that when when we start to lose, especially the the beginning of that top hat, that that uh, that vertical upstroke. So the from the baseline, so baseline kind of being that zero, being the flat space where inspiration is happening, we should have a really nice vertical upstroke. But when that upstroke starts to, to, to level out, when it starts to flatten a little bit, that, that is usually an indication of um, the start of bronchoconstriction. That upstroke represents the, the dead space in our, uh, our lungs. If we harken back to EMT basic school, we had about a 150 milliliters of dead space in our, in, in those, in our bronchial tree that doesn't get to our, our alveoli. And so when that, that upstroke starts to, to become uh, more at an angle and less vertical, that's an that's indication of that we're starting to have um, trouble getting the air out of our dead space because our bronchioles are starting to constrict. And the, the longest part of our, the waveform, that the top part, the top of the top hat, that's what we refer to as our, our plateau, our alveolar plateau. And that that represents the air in our alveoli actually getting um, getting out and getting to um, the surface, if you will, getting to where we're, we're measuring the, uh, our end tidal CO2. And that really should be a long, flat waveform. And when that starts to, to lose, one, its length, and then when it starts to get more pointed, sometimes even referred to as a shark fin waveform, then the co- that combination of that loss of our upstroke and the shortening of our plateau, that's a that is a diagnostic indication of bronchial constriction and even severe bronchial constriction in our patients that we can pretty much target um, to, you know, some kind of uh, respiratory, uh, lower respiratory disease, whether that be an asthma attack or a COPD flare up. So anytime we see that, that shark fin like uh, look, we know that that's a diagnostic of, of severe bronchial constriction in the body. So one of the things that um, uh, certainly you want to keep in uh, mind and keep an eye on um, for patients who specifically are intubated patients and patients that we're monitoring uh, is that uh, our alveolar plateau normally should be a long, flat um, part of our waveform, um, again, with maybe just a bit of a gentle rise. But one of the, the things that we may see with some of our patients um, is that sometimes there can be a sharp little um, bite in that, that alveolar plateau. That's the best way for me to explain, uh, to explain it as a little bite in that. Um, and what that's actually representing is it's representing um, a diaphragmatic spasm, um, almost, almost like a hiccup, if you will. But if we think about patients that have especially been paralyzed or patients that have been deeply sedated, one of the, the first things that starts to come out of uh, paralyzation and, and come out of uh, deep sedation is that our diaphragm starts to want to, to kick back in and, and remember that this whole process when we have a patient intubated is we have, we have, we're providing a positive pressure ventilation versus the body is so used to being in that negative pressure uh, mode. And so that the diaphragm can start to um, start to spasm a little bit, start to want to kind of buck, if you will, if you will. And that can be seen as a little bite in that alveolar plateau. And that's a, that's a good sign that um, it's time for, for our patient to go ahead and make sure that their analgesia and their sedation levels are, are appropriate. 
it doesn't necessarily mean that we need to um, uh, re-paralyze the patient necessarily, but it does mean that uh, they're, they're, they may be uh, starting to come out of their sedation. A big thing you said there was we we don't need to re-paralyze. Um, paralytics, in my mind, are really what we use in the beginning, but proper sedation analgesia throughout your innovative patient is uh, going to make them a lot happier. So just keep that in mind, and um, I'm sure we'll do an episode on proper analgesia and sedation in the future. Some other waveforms we can pay attention to, we'll get into the uh, the perfusion, the cardiac reasons why we use entitle are uh, hypercapnia and hypocapnia. So your hypercapnia is anything greater than 45 millimeters of mercury, and hypocapnia is anything less than 35 millimeters of mercury. So, John, what are some uh, what are some reasons we could be hypercapnic? Let's say we have them on a vent at a normal rate. We're not bagging excessively or too slow. So, probably the 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 easiest one to think about, and the one that uh, is the easiest for us to to overcome, is that if we are not if we're not if the patient is not breathing fast enough compared to the the metabolism in our body, then they're going to start to build up carbon dioxide or CO two in their body. So literally just that idea of hypoventilation, not breathing fast enough, uh, we'll, we'll do that. So we have to make sure that if we, if we are transporting a patient on a vent or we're bagging a patient, that we're, we're doing it at an appropriate rate is to, to get off the CO2 that they're producing. And, and that's going to be you know, uh, different for patient to patient based on what's going on in their body at the time. Think about um, a patient is in a, 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 a meta- metabolic overdrive. Um, for example, let's say that we had to, to intubate a, a patient who had overdosed on a stimulant. Then, then obviously their body is just going to be in overdrive and, and, and working really hard. And so we're going to have to provide a, more respirations for that. Because um, if, we, if we only ventilated them at a, at a rate of 10, then their, their CO2 is going to drive up because their cells are just in overdrive producing lots more CO2. So we're going to have to, to ventilate them at a higher rate. Um, so that's probably the, the easiest one to think about. Hypoventilation is going to cause patients to um, potentially have that raised entitled CO2. Another, another common thing uh, for entitled uh, CO2 is air trapping. So when we have our patients who are having uh, difficulty having difficulty getting air out of their lungs. So chiefly, if we think about that, we, we think classically of our COPD patients or our, our, our pulmonary patients. And those patients um, can have that difficulty getting the air out of their lungs because of that bronchoconstriction. They, they're actually building up that entitled CO2 or that CO2 with, uh, with each breath that they take. Um, so we, it's an indication when, that, when we have that that we need to be uh, aggressive with uh, giving them medications and, and making sure we're giving them the right settings to get that CO2 out of their lungs rather than to let it build up. Other other things that can cause um, uh, that hypercapnia is, again, that whenever we have increased metabolism, we have to think that we're going to have increased CO2 production in our body. So again, specifically thinking about our febrile patients, that febrile patients are going to produce more entitled uh, or CO2. The other ones would be, again, any, any patient who is, for whatever reason, overdosed on stimulants, anything of, you know, cocaine and methamphetamines and stuff like that. We have to think about the overproduction because they're literally their, their body is in, in, in overdrive that can do it. And then finally, especially the ones we have to think about in terms of 
being ventilated, mechanically ventilated, is that anytime our patients are rebreathing CO2 that they've exhaled. So if that's a problem with the vent circuit, if that's a kinked ET tube where they're not, we're not able to pass that air, they're going to rebreathe some of that uh, CO2 that they've attempted to exhale, and that's going to cause their uh, their CO2 to to increase as well. So again, the, the the big ones are going to be hypoventilation, not not ventilating fast enough based on the the production in the body. Air trapping based on usually based on a, a pathophysiology of, of of COPD or another pulmonary disease, increased metabolism in the body, or rebreathing uh, CO two that you've already exhaled. You can kind of group all of that together into your COPD patients, or either a metabolic reason, including ROSC or these the fevers, the hyperthermia, the the overdrive patients. Yeah, I mean specifically uh, when we think of hypercapnia, then then perfusion is good in the body. If we have the ability to produce that much uh, CO two and for it to get to a point where we're exhaling it, that means that uh, perfusion is happening. So it's really, as you said, it's a it's a, either a respiratory or a metabolism problem at that point in time. Let's switch gears and go to hypocapnia. So that's anything less than thirty five. Obviously, we've we're directly talking about perfusion here. So we're pretty low on the perfusion totem pole here. So we're not perfusing well. What other, uh, what other things can we look at reversible causes maybe for hypocapnia? Right. Absolutely. So yeah, just as you said, yeah, hypoperfusion is going to be the number one thing. Um, so any of our patients who are, are in that, uh, in any type of uh, a stage of shock potentially are going to be hype, you know, hypoperfused and they're going to have low entitled CO2 values. The other thing, obviously, is going to be on the opposite of what we said with hypercapnia, but this is going to be hyperventilation. So if the patient is breathing off more CO2 than their body is producing, that's going to cause um, that uh, those numbers to be to be low, to be low 35. So hyperventilation. And, and we have to remember that hyperventilation isn't necessarily always um, associated with a, a panic attack or an anxiety attack, and, and certainly it can, but lots of other things can cause that as well. And Certainly, I like to think about if we have a patient on a ventilator and if that patient, hopefully we've, we've put them on a setting in which they can take spontaneous breaths, um, you know, whether that be like a, a assist control or a, or a SIMV, um, and we have not properly given them analgesia. So they are, they are in pain because they, they have a small straw down their, their trachea. They're going to have a painful response and they're going to start breathing faster because of that. And that may not be a, a good thing for our patients at the time. So, so making sure that um, we're not letting our patients uh, uh, hyperventilate, um, certainly that, that's important. And that can cause that uh, entitled CO2 to drop. Another thing uh, that can do that is the slowing of metabolism. So when those metabolisms get low and, and probably the, the most uh, common one that we see or the most dramatic one is that is going to be when we have patients who are hypothermic. Um, and whether that be from a disease process that's caused them to be hypothermic, or like a metabolic, severe metabolic disorder, or obviously just exposure. Um, so hypothermia will, will systematically cause cells to decrease, decrease their metabolism uh, needs. So that, would do, that, that can do it as well. But the most important one we have to remember is that perfusion drives it all. So if you do not have perfusion, you're not going to have entitled CO2. Um, that's just, that's the name of the game. And specifically, I like to think about um, with that is, uh, you know, our cardiac arrest patients, you know, when we're working a, a code, obviously the, 
the, the perfusion that we're providing is from chest compressions. And those chest compressions are really just getting perfusion to the heart, maybe to the brain and to some of those major organs. But, you know, there's virtually no blood getting down. Let me think about into the legs and to, you know, to the very into the extremities and where all those additional cells are. That being said, with really good chest compressions, if we can have an entitled CO2 of 20, then that's a, that's a really amazing uh, code that we're working right there. And then obviously, when we get uh, that return of spontaneous circulation, we see those really abrupt jumps in, in uh, entitled CO2 returns. Um, so suddenly we have an entitled CO2 that went from 16 or 18 during chest compressions to now we have an uh, entitled CO2 of 60. And it's because we had that return of circulation that blood suddenly got down into the legs, into the arms, where it was building up from those from those cells and it's been returned to the heart. So it, it just goes to show you that perfusion drives it. It's all about perfusion. We have to remember that anytime that we're using entitled CO2 is perfusion is the uh, is the main the main um, provider of, of that. Your body has been stagnant for a while while we're doing compressions and um all of a sudden, when that patient you know gets ROSC, that spontaneous circulation, we're just offloading a ton of CO2 that hasn't really been perfused in the body. I actually found a pretty uh, – it's a stupid mnemonic, but you know you have to have mnemonics in, uh, in EMS. It's a PQRST, and it's uh, specifically for arrests and how you can use end title in them. So your P stands for the position of your ET tube. That's going to come first because that's how you're going to measure your, your end title. You can, uh, you can use it for your quality of compressions. So like, uh, like John said, if you have something around 20, you're doing really good. You can use it for ROSC. Obviously, we just stated that. If you have a giant increase in end-title CO2 from your normal 10 to 20, you know that that patient has had spontaneous circulation and probably has a pulse. Next is S, uh, strategy for treatment. So if you have someone with a low low end title, you know that you're being, that you're, you're not perfusing well, that could be the compressions that could be an internal disease process. And then finally T is your termination of resuscitation. And you can pretty much almost guarantee anyone less than 10 or eight on your end title does not have a good outcome. You're doing great quality compressions, but their body is just not perfusing for some reason. So you can kind of use that mnemonic in cardiac arrest to evaluate how end title can guide your, your treatment care. Yeah, and I'll uh, I'll add this. Uh, this is my my latest uh, soapbox, if you will. Is that um, obviously one of the things that, and I think it's a little bit of a falsehood um, that has been taught to us is that our normal range is thirty five to forty five, and if if we can get our patients to be within that, especially our intubated patients, then that's then we're doing a good thing, and that can be a little bit of a falsehood, especially if we think about our trauma patients or or, or our shock patients you know, obviously shock, the definition of it is low perfusion, you know, and, and because of that. And so if we have an intubated patient who is also shocky, um, our, our tendency is to try to get them to have an entitled CO2 between 35 and 45. But if, if we're not, if we haven't fixed their perfusion, if they're continuing to, to be in a, a low perfusion state, then there, there's no way that we're going to get them to that 35 to 45 state because the, what we would have to do is we would, uh, we would have to, or what we tend to do is we we see that hey, they're right now their entitled CO two is twenty six, um, and what am I going to do to fix that? Well, it you know in theory it should be that I'm going to slow down my respirations so that we can uh, get that entitled CO two up to that n- that happy number of thirty five. So the problem exists then is that 
if we have a person who's in shock and they're, let's say their blood pressure is, I don't know, 78 over 40, uh, obviously they're, they're in a poor perfusion state right now. And if we slow down their respirations to, to try to attempt to get that entitled CO2 up, then what we're doing is that we're actually creating a hypoxic patient. We're not, we're not providing them with enough ventilation to, to overcome what's going on in their body at the time. And we're creating a hypoxic patient who also is in a poor perfusion state. So that's obviously a really bad thing. So one of the things that we have to remember that when we have patients who are poorly perfusing is we need to, we need to ventilate them at a normal rate that 12 to 14, 12 to 16 uh, breaths per minute. Um, and, and not let the entitled CO2 be our guideline in that regards. But really at that point in time, the entitled CO2 tells us the state of their perfusion. It doesn't necessarily tell us the, where we want that entitled CO2 to be, if that makes sense. So I think it's important there to think about the underlying causes of your abnormal numbers or waveform and, and don't go chasing numbers. Like you said, if you're, if you have somebody that's on that, that decline of, uh, end title, you don't want to hypoperfuse them. You actually maybe want to hyperventilate because especially in a trauma patient, if they've lost a lot of blood, they've lost a, a lot of ability to carry oxygen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's not about getting that in between 35 and 45. The, on the, on the, another note about that is it's a great tool to also monitor that perfusion status in terms of, I know that, you know, Jaren, you and I both are, are really uh, fond of putting almost all of our patients on entitled CO2, whether that be, obviously with a uh, inline on the end of an ET tube, but or even more commonly using the nasal cannula um, in tidal CO2 adapters. And it's a really great way of trending our patient's perfusion. So for example, if I'm transporting a, a STEMI patient, I really like to have that in tidal CO2 on that patient because one, it gives me a baseline of what their perfusion status is a little bit based on what how much in tidal CO2 they're per- producing. And if I see that trending downward, you know, throughout that transport, um, which will often happen in more real time than my blood pressure cuff will let me know, then it's a good indicator that, Hey, I need to, I need to go ahead and work on, uh, changing their perfusion status, whether that, you know, be by, be, be a medication or whether that be uh, about transcutaneous pacing, but, um, it's a good, real good way of trending our patients. If we really just wrap that up, we're, we're looking mainly at our entitled CO2 is not just a respiratory tool anymore. I know that's, that's harped on a lot. Obviously we want to use it in respiratory to confirm our entitled, but we, we really want to focus it on a lot of our patients with perfusion status. We can really guide our patient care and figure out what's going on with our patient by just putting them on and, and trending these numbers. So, you know, some of the things that, you know, entitled has, gosh, there's a whole host of applications you can use it for. And, and the more you understand it, the more you can use it to really, you know, help you in terms of your treatment of your patient. Uh, one example that, I've, that has uh, worked for me, and I've heard some good stories from other people too, is, is uh, using entitled CO2 in regards to when you have to transcutaneous pace somebody. Anybody who has had to do that knows that probably the most difficult thing about, well, two, two of the most difficult things about pacing a patient is one, getting mechanical capture and then two is ensuring that you actually have it um, while that patient is kind of obviously, you know, uh, shaking, you know, with each electrical uh, stimulation that they get it can be difficult to do. 
and then making sure that you keep it as well. And so what Intitle TO2 can do is it, because it's a, it's a, it's measures perfusion. And because the whole reason that we're pacing a patient is to increase their perfusion. One of the things that you tools you can use it for is that if you have that baseline in title CO2 of prior to you turning on that pacer, and let's say that it was at 26 was your, was your in title prior to turning on that pacer. And then you turn that on and you're attempting to get mechanical capture and you're questioning whether or not you have that mechanical capture. Well, if that in title CO2 is not moved at all, then that's probably a pretty indicator, a good indicator that perfusion is not increasing at all. Versus if you put that, that uh, pacer on, you turn it on and you, you work it up until you believe you have capture and you think you're, you're pretty sure you feel that pulse that matches and you look over and you see that your entitled CO2 has now jumped up to, let's say 34 then that's, that's a pretty good verification that, Hey, perfusion is increasing in the body. And that's probably, probably helps us verify that sure enough that I think we do have good mechanical capture. And then of course, if it shows us that we have mechanical capture, it can also indicate maybe when we lose that, you know, if we see a sharp decline in that entitled CO2, you know, throughout, it can be an indication that uh, I think maybe we've, we've lost that mechanical capture and we need to, to try again. So that's just one of the tools that you can use, but the more you understand how entitled CO2 works and, and the perfusion, the metabolism aspects of things, it can really, uh, you can use it for a, a whole host of things. I think uh, we're really just harping on using entitled to monitor that perfusion and metabolic process in the patient. I think uh, one patient that we deal with a lot that we may overlook is our septic patients. Um, if you know anything about surge criteria, you can go back to my sepsis episode. We explained that. But John, how can we use Entitle on a septic patient? Yeah, I think, again, um, you know, obviously with uh, our septic patients is that we're really, we, we want to avoid that patient going from a, you know, to being a, a septic, septic patient to getting to septic shock. We want them, we really want to turn them around. So, and if anything, we want to avoid them even becoming sepsis. We want to catch them when they're in that first uh, stages of the infection uh, um, process. And so, by looking using that entitled CO two, one it, it helps us, uh, you know, give us a little verification of, you know, if this patient is febrile. Well, febrile doesn't necessarily mean that a patient is septic, but if we see, you know, the entitled CO two is low, that's a good indication of well, you know, how's that perfusion status right now. And then that, you know, in combination with the, the other, you know, factors of, of SIRS, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, oxygen demand and thinking about their, their respiratory drive, it, it can get, it adds that information for us and it can help us be more aggressive with treating our patients. I think across the board, we know with, with septic patients, the more aggressive we can be early on in terms of getting them fluid resuscitated and, you know, getting, you know, getting that, those pressures up that the, the better the outcome is for those patients. And, and even, you know, in some States, I know that it's, it's helping them drive in terms of getting early antibiotics in the field on board as well. So it's just another tool to help us really, you know, ho hopefully, you know, fend off a sepsis to keep our patients from going down that road, or if they're already down that road to let us allow us to be really aggressive and to monitor them well. That's really important. If you take one thing away from this is using it for your septic patients. It can, uh, and kind of guide your care to see how early or late uh, you are in the stage of how sick they are. 
let's uh let's go over to another really popular patient we have i think everywhere in america and that's our overdose patients uh, especially on opiates so we don't want to slam the narcan and uh increase those respirations dramatically but uh how can we use entitle on these patients Absolutely. So I think one thing is that we have to remember that we, we, we give Narcan for to increase respiratory drive, right? That um, it's not used to uh, awaken a patient, um, although we've all made those, those mistakes in the past, I think. Um, rather, what we can do is when we can, if we, if we have the ability um, to, to get a baseline entitled CO2 on the patient, then what really, really we can do is we can um, give that Narcan to, and we can, we, you can titrate it to effect, so rather than slamming them with that too, you know, if they're not in a, you know, severe, uh, you know, uh, obviously uh, respiratory failure or, or, you know, even worse respiratory arrest, um, and they're just in that, you know, respiratory insufficiency stage, then we can, we can titrate that Narcan uh, and use that entitled CO2 to help guide us a little bit. So rather than slamming them with two, we give them, you know, 0.4, or we give them one milligram um, and, and we can look to see how that, that trend is going in terms of their, their, uh, their respiratory drive, um, and, and to see how that, uh, that can, uh, um, change their entitled CO2. Yeah. So obviously we don't want to slam it, you know, for the patient's safety, your safety, everyone's safety, but yeah, just monitoring their, uh, their perfusion status and their respiratory rate. You can, uh, give them a little Narcan, realize that their entitled is perfectly fine. The respirations may be slow. Uh, they could be, you know, six, seven, or eight. But if their end title is perfectly fine, in my book, I would leave them just like that. Maybe put an OPA or MPA in uh, if they tolerate it just to help keep that tongue off the back of the hypopharynx. But as long as they have good perfusion status, I'm okay leaving them with the, uh, with the lower respiration rate. I don't want to risk pushing too much Narcan, waking them up and having an irate patient and jeopardizing my safety. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to remember too, that there's a, there's a difference in terms of if that patient, that uh, overdose patient has a, a has a low entitled CO2, then that's a pretty, uh, uh, that's a pretty bad sign in terms of this patient is pretty far along the process of going into near, near arrest versus if the patient, we get to them and, and they're having those really slow respirations and they have that, have a dramatically high entitled CO2, um, that's that. That's that's the sweet spot in that regards because that means at that point in time they they've been trapping CO two because they're not breathing it uh, breathing it off effectively, but their body's still producing it. Um, and so we give them we can titrate that Narcan and hopefully that's going to increase their respirations and and bring that entitled CO two gradually down over time. Um, that's really that patient that it works really well for. If, you know, if we show up in their entitled CO two, their original entitled CO two is you know obviously below twenty or something like that, then that's just a status that they're, 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 they're beyond just respiratory failure. They're now into a, to a deeper crisis. And at that point in time, we have to be more aggressive in terms of getting that perfusion status up. Yeah. So really end title is just all about trending perfusion and seeing where you're at in a disease process or your care plan on your patient. If you're early, late in the middle, it seems like you can really do a lot with end title. So we've gone over different waveforms, um, knowing that sh- not just respiratory. Uh, we've realized this is really good predictor in sepsis patients, trauma patients, very helpful in pacing because we know that can be a difficult skill to do, especially in a moving aircraft or ambulance. How to uh, treat our overdose patients, not just slamming them with Narcan, just monitoring them. So that covers a lot of information on end title. And you know, with the conjunction of 
having your SPO2 probe and using either inline or a nasal cannula end title, you can get a plethora of information of how well or how bad your patient's doing. John, is there anything else you really want to hit on with end title that could be important for our listeners to know? No, I think, again, I think the, the biggest thing is the more comfortable you are in terms of interpreting it, the better, the better you'll be. You know, the thing about end title is that it doesn't tell us what's going wrong with the patient. We have to, we still have to do the, uh, our, our proper assessments. We still have to get those good his, uh, physicals and histories and, and lay our hands on our patients and listen to lung sounds. We still have to do all that. But if we, if we do that and in conjunction with the, the information that the entitled CO2 is, is giving us, then we can really, you know, begin to, to treat our patients differently. Um, but if, you know, if, if we're not interpreting what the entitled CO2 is saying correctly, then, you know, it's really not uh, doing justice to how we're treating our patients. So still have to do all the other stuff and do that well. But uh, prop- if we can do that properly, it, it really helps in terms of guiding how you'll you know, your treat your patients in the future. I agree. That's uh, all really good information. So as much as it sucks, I uh, encourage you to go back and kind of look over the Krebs cycle, get familiar with uh, how our body metabolizes things and how we actually create CO2. Uh, we'll put in the show notes all the different waveforms that can come about so you can kind of get a handle on those. Remember to always print your strip. You're not going to be able to accurately identify what's going on on your monitor. Once you get the basis of using caffeinography, you're, you'll end up putting it on a lot of patients. Uh, like John said, I put mine on almost all my patients just to kind of trend things. And it's kind of like lung sounds. You don't know what a bad one sounds like unless you've heard a bunch of good ones. So knowing these different waveforms and knowing and how to correlate them with different disease processes, the better you get, the the better your care is going to be towards these patients. So I want to thank John for coming on today and uh, just giving us this information. So uh, that's going to be it for this week. I want to thank you guys for listening. Remember to subscribe on iTunes. Give me a rating. That really helps out a lot. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you. <laughs>